I, I want you to, to come back with me uh, in time a little bit. I want you to come to 1996. Uh, I was a new Christian at this time, and I just want you to imagine you're putting on your fuzzy headphones, and you reach down, and you hit play on your Walkman, and this is what you hear. On your rollerblading, we're in it. Comes down the breakdown. you listen to the whole song but I see some of you right like some of you remember some of you were into it you can picture yourself walking or driving with the, the tape in the deck you know this was like such a good time for me I remember being new to the faith and hearing that song and it really just made something kind of come alive in me and brought a lot of excitement and, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it like I didn't know what was sort of driving it but I knew that it was so good. And it wouldn't be till about four years later uh, that I would re be reflecting more on this song while I read this book that's up on the screen. You might remember this, the classic from 1999, Jesus Freaks, Stories of Martyrs, the stories of those who stood for Jesus. And this book was filled with stories of people who had given their lives to follow Jesus. And through it, uh, they kind of came back to that line that we just heard in the song, which is kamikaze, my death is gain. And it brought it all back to scripture, to the book of Philippians, which we're studying together as a church, where we see Paul says the famous line, to live Christ, to die gain. And as I saw that, as I read that, as I heard that, something spoke deep down inside of me, which made me realize that there was a reality to the call on my life as a follower of Jesus. And so today, what I'm hoping we do as we go into the passage that this is referencing in song and in word, that we will get sort of an, an inspiration to go back to what God has called us to, that we will gain an excitement for what life could be lived like, and that we would both find some inspiration uh, to kind of go and pursue this, but also some inspiration to go and inspire other people in the ways that these scriptures, these songs, and these books have done for people like me. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 26. 
And while you're searching up that, let me just remind those who weren't with us last week where we are. We're starting uh, a, a letter to the church in Philippi, which Paul wrote in uh, about 62 AD. About 12 years before he wrote this letter, uh, Paul had been in what is modern-day Macedonia in this town called Philippi, establishing a church uh, originally with a group of ladies who gathered along the side of a river, and eventually it grew to be a well-established house church, which would have a global impact as the people work together to support the expanse of God's kingdom by sharing the good news of Jesus with both those in their community and, by extension, those around the world as they funded the missionary journeys of Paul and his companions. And so Paul, up until this point, if you were with us last week, has been encouraging the church. He's been uh, praising their efforts. He's been excited about how they've not sort of lost sight of what they're about after he left, but how things have continued to go and how things have continued to grow. And now here we're coming in to a passage where after this encouragement, he's sort of wrestling with a few things. And we're going to experience some of the inner turmoil that he's wrestling with while he also focuses on what is most important in his life and by extension, I believe the lives of those he was writing to, all while he's awaiting a possible death sentence. That's what's bringing this turmoil in. So with that in mind, let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Paul continues on from his encouragement saying this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, well, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to, re to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and through God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I, am eagerly, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to de depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, against your boasting in Jesus Christ, 
will abound on account of me. Paul's written some incredible words here, and it's all condensed in sort of one little section. So we're going to kind of take it chunk at a time, but we're going to really focus on that one line in verse 21. But right off the top, we see that the Paul is saying, you know what, I, even though you know I'm imprisoned, and we don't know exactly where he was imprisoned. Scholars sort of debate whether he's in Ephesus at this time or whether he's in Rome in prison, and there, there's good arguments for both. But we don't know where, but that's not so much what's important. What we know is that while Paul is chained up, good things are happening. Now, have you heard the most important person to you and the person you were hoping was representing you in some sort of way and, and championing your cause got arrested and was imprisoned again? You'd probably be a little discouraged. But Paul's not discouraged because he is seeing what's actually going on. He's actually watching the plan of Rome backfire on itself. You see, Paul has stirred up such a seam in the Roman Empire that they've decided we need to keep an eye on this guy 24-7. Well, as a Roman citizen, Paul has some freedoms that they can't really just imprison him uh, completely all the time in a certain way until they've determined what to do with them. So what they do is they say, aha, what we'll do is we will literally chain him to one of our imperial guards. So there's going to be a Roman soldier with him at all times paying attention to what's up. Now these guys who were chained to Paul were called the Praetorian or the imperial guards or uh, the royal guards as you might read depending on your translation. And these guys are the elite of the elite of the Roman military. These are the guys who have sort of risen to the surface like we might picture an American Navy SEAL who's going on, on mission. These are the guys who, they just have the skills in every way and they have shown themselves loyal and so they have been identified by, you know, and you can picture this, right? The little red fan of feathers on the top of their head and they're assigned special jobs. One of the most special jobs that they could be assigned is to be a bodyguard. A bodyguard who would hopefully, if you were even the best of the best, be one who would guard the emperor or one of his governors or generals. But Paul, you see, was such a threat that they said, we're going to use this resource, this incredible guy, to be with him. And they're spending a lot of money on these guys. These guys are now being praised and honored. They want to be representative of the whole of Rome military might. And so what happens is these guys in their culture have become sort of society's elite. Wherever they go, people would be like, we want to be kind of connected to them. Other soldiers would hope to kind of suck up to them so that maybe they could get po better postings. People who were just Roman citizens would want to suck up to them for their power and wealth and establishment and want to be with them. And so what happens is as these guys are chained in shifts to Paul, they go around with him and listen to him share the gospel. Paul's talking to his friends in the city, sharing with them all about the amazing things that God is doing. What Jesus has done by dying on the cross, how Jesus has chained him. Train, uh, changed him from a man who was trained to think completely a different way 
and was out murdering Christians to being someone who would endure all this for the name of Jesus. And as they hear this, as they walk alongside him, some of the guards begin to believe in Jesus. So while Rome was trying to stop the advance of the gospel amongst the commoners, they'd actually unwittingly brought the gospel to the highest echelons of society so that it could trickle down in an even greater way. This was a beautiful thing that Paul wanted to celebrate. He says, even though I'm in chains, I have a great opportunity to share the hope of Jesus. And what's happening is this doesn't just inspire these guards to to follow Jesus, but it inspires the other Christians. We see that Paul's excited because other people in the community begin to share their faith. They're like, well, if Paul can share his faith, and if it has such a power to it that it's going to change these guys who stand for everything that Jesus is against, there's some hope. We can do this. I can feel some courage. And maybe some of that courage was just because they knew that those Roman guys weren't going to kill them because they believed the same. Or maybe they just felt like if Paul's willing to risk certain death, I got to do this as well. Man, I've seen what has happened in Paul's life because of Jesus. And so if he can have that boldness, I can too. Because I can see the boldness within me beginning to rise up as well. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced the feeling uh, of being encouraged to share your faith because of what someone else is doing? Well, for me, right, like that DC Talk song and the stories of martyrs, that was a big part of my story of wanting to be involved in what God was doing around the world. In fact, it was the reason why, as a, as a young teen, I left my family for a month to go serve on my first mission trip. It's what would eventually lead me to go on a number of short-term mission trips around the world. And what's amazing is that as I've gone on those trips, I have been inspired by the faith of others. I've been inspired by my, my doctor, Jim, my family doctor. Dr. Jim Adams was a guy who shuts down his medical practice for a month every summer to go on missions trip. He was who I went with on that first one. But he also then inspired us to go on a, a medical mission to the country of Laos in Southeast Asia. And there I met someone who inspired my faith again. I got to meet a Laotian woman who had risked life and limb to lift up the people in her society. To save people time and time again. Now I'm not going to use her name because she's still in Laos serving the people of God and her community to change the life of people all over that nation. But let me tell you what she did. During the Vietnam War, she was so distraught of what was happening in the neighboring nation. She could see it right across the river. And so each night, she would pull out a raft out of hiding, and she would paddle back and forth across the river trying to rescue people who were fleeing from a war-torn nation. And this wasn't without any type of worry. In fact, people would sit on both sides of the river at night and take pot shots at her, trying to kill her and the defectors from Vietnam. 
After the Vietnam War ended, she decided that there was something that had to be done to help fix up her nation. In case you didn't know this, Laos got bombed more than Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Because what would happen is that as the planes would take off then go over Vietnam, they'd sort of hit whatever targets they could hit. But because of the nature of the bombs in their day, they couldn't land with any leftover again. And so what did they do? They went, ah, look at this pathetic little country. Let's just bomb it. And so it has more live bombs in the ground than anywhere else in the world today. Think about that. Think about all the bombs that are going on in war today, and there's more of them just stuck in the earth, both exploded and unexploded, in the nation of Laos, which you probably couldn't even peg on a map because it's so small, unless you've studied it. And this woman decided, what I need to do is I need to begin to create work. And so in particular, what she began to do is create a silk farming industry amongst the women in the different villages, because they were most affected. And so over a number of different neighboring villages, she brought this industry. Some would grow silkworms. Others would harvest the silk. Other towns would learn how to dye the silks. Others would learn how to weave them again. And then others would sell them to be distributed around the world. And she began to do all this. But along the way, what she began to do is invite in the work of some other missions organizations, like Samaritan's Purse, who I had the opportunity to travel with. And as we went to her expense in many ways we got to go and share the gospel and the good news of jesus as she did as well and so did uh, a missionary woman who sacrificed her life to live uh, on this compound and you know what it, it was really truly dangerous for her to do the underground church there is highly persecuted it was such an affront what we were going to do. We would literally just have to bribe guards and police and the military over and over again while we were there so that we could keep doing not just the medical mission, not just the construction we were doing, but bring the name of Jesus. For this woman to sacrifice or be willing to sacrifice life and limb around every bend inspires me. I still think about her all the time. I'm just so amazed. And this is what Paul was doing. And, and this is what others have been doing over and over again. And why I bring this up is this is a really important part of this letter. And it's an important part we need to think about again if we're going to follow Jesus. Anyone ever lost excitement about sharing their faith? I'm going to be the only one to raise my hand? Okay. I see some others. Thank you for being honest. The rest of you, liars. Um, but no. But I mean, really, right? It, it's hard. It's hard to like get up the courage over and over again to share your faith. It's, it's hard when you've experienced rejection of people because of what you believe. It's hard to go do it over and over again. It, it's really hard to stay passionate. And so one of the good disciplines that we need to have is, uh, as believers is to find people and things that encourage us time and time again. Because those inspirations will become a source of allowing us to step out in faith. Paul was this for the Philippians. Now maybe for you it's enough to just read 
Paul. It's enough to, to read about Jesus, and I hope that's enough. Jesus should be enough. But in those times when it begins to wane and fade, you need to look for inspiration again. So I encourage you, as a, as a discipline this week, take time to, to ask yourselves, who can encourage me in this? I'm going to tell you, you don't have to look very far. One of the things that I love is how God brings his people together in the local church. We have all sorts of people in this church who are just having incredible stories of how they share their faith over and again. We've had people who served as missionaries around the world. We have people who serve just exactly where they are in their workplace or in their situation, whatever it may be, who, who are just passionate about letting people know what Jesus has done. I encourage you to seek them out. I'm going to name some of them. I didn't ask them for mission. They're going to hate this, all of them, I'm sure. But, but you know, go to people like Keith and Cindy Frew. Listen to their stories about serving overseas. Uh, go to people like Roy and Gwen, even though they're in care. You can go visit them and, and hear their stories. Read Roy's book, The Unmistakable Hand of God, of how God uh, worked through him and the work they were doing. Talk to people like John Armstrong, who has worked with people in recovery for years. Talk to guys like Dan Chapman or, or Randy Evans who have been part of planting churches and pastoring over and over again. Talk to the Bermans. Talk to just normal people. Talk to Carol Thornton about what's happening in her building. Talk to someone like Abigail who is, has a, an, a niche to get into places where the gospel is not welcome. There's all sorts of stories in our church and we need to take time to hear them. Not so that those people can have egos. Not that those, so those people can just be proud of, yeah, I, I've done my part like Paul did. But so that you can learn and be inspired and have hope for what it could look like to share the message of Jesus. There's so many more in our church. Go find them. Talk about it in your community group this week. Who's inspiring me? Find those people that are your Paul. Now, Paul was excited about all this that was going on because it was an inspiration for the advance of the gospel. In verses 15 to 18, we read this. He said, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? What does it matter? Isn't that interesting? Listen to the situation he's writing that in. Some people are doing it for the right reason. Some people are doing it in the wrong reason. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. This is the thing. And we've, as we studied last week, we, we see the way Paul writes this in the original Greek, that Paul is writing in a sense like this is... What I am saying I am rejoicing about is the very same thing Jesus is rejoicing about. And so you can hear Paul again on behalf of Jesus say, I'm just so thankful that my message is being shared again and again. Now Paul doesn't actually encourage people to share for the wrong reasons. Like, like, let's just take note of that. Like, we shouldn't share the gospel out, for, out of the sense of competition or contempt. And sadly, that happens all the time, right? We've, we've all seen this. 
We've seen when people try to look good, you know, you see in pastor, in pastor circles, I see it all the time where people try to actually one-up one another and look better than the church down the street. And, and, and that's, that's a shame. That should never happen. You know, we've seen it where people are, are motivated out of false reasons. We see people use the gospel all the time, Canadian, American, all over the world, politics, right? Makes me sick. Hate it. We shouldn't do it out of that reason. So what do we do it out of? We do it out of a place of love. That's what Paul actually rejoices most in. He's glad that, that this is happening, that the gospel is coming out, but he's even more thrilled when it comes from a place of love. You know, that's what our ambition should be. We shouldn't be sharing the gospel out of a place of guilt. So when I share this message, I don't want you to hear, man, I feel guilty that I'm not going out and sharing my faith. If you feel guilty, I mean, that's between you and God, and if the Holy Spirit's impressing that on you, uh, th that's between you and him. But what you do need to hear is God wants you to preach out of love. He wants you to go out because you are so motivated by your love of Jesus, those things we've been singing about this morning, the thing that we're going to celebrate when we take communion later. You should be so motivated by love for other people, those around you, your family, friends, coworkers, classmates. You should be so motivated by your love for them that you want to share the best thing possible. That's what Paul did. And so he rejoiced again and again. And Paul says that as we do this, in, a, in the book of Ephesians, he writes, while we speak the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head of Christ Jesus. So we become like Jesus. We reflect Jesus as we share about him over and over again from a place of love. And that moves Paul right on into the next and, and perhaps sort of most poignant section of this verse. And, and I mentioned this last week. We're going to come a whole bunch of times to these great little quotes through the book of Philippians. But we're going to come to one in particular here in the first chapter where we feel the coming together of this motivation, where we feel the coming together of the inspiration of Paul being inspired, but also him wanting to inspire others in verse 21. It says, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now remember the situation, the circumstance Paul finds himself in. He's chained to the imperial guard. Why? Because he's waiting his conviction. He wrestles with, and you read it in the verse, I don't think I'm going to go be executed, but at the same time, I'm totally prepared. He's waiting for an execution sentence to possibly come down or for it to pass. And so when Paul says this, he's not saying this as a platitude. To live Christ, to die gain. He doesn't say that so that we can have a pithy little saying that we can memorize so we can have a memory verse today. He says that wrestling and fully comprehending what life is and what death is. Remember, Paul lives in a time in history with a rampantly high infant mortality rate. Uh, extremely low life expectancy. Likely by his age, he's more than halfway through his life and he's maybe in his 20s or 30s. 
right? Paul has faced shipwrecks. He's been tortured. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned, all for the gospel. All with very few medical advances to be able to help him recover. So when he says something about death, we better listen. We better be amazed by what he's saying. And so from there, he doesn't ask his friends to celebrate his potential martyrdom, nor does he ask them to grieve his death. Neither. Instead, what he wants to do (coughs) is to face the reality of what it looks like to live with Jesus. What it looks like to embrace all of what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. To live Christ to die gain. Now you'll notice I'm saying it slightly differently than what you might read on the screen or read in your Bible. And that's for a very particular reason. I actually disagree with a lot of translators and how they translate this, as with many, many scholars. If you were to read this actual verse in the original language, which is Greek, you would read uh, this line below it. Amoi gar to zen Christos kai to apothenin kurdos. Now that means nothing to most of us, and that's okay. Except for I want you to catch a little bit of some interesting things that are going on here. One, there's this word Christos, and then there's this word kurdos. Do you hear how they sort of have a, a similar sound to it? Paul's trying to get his people to understand. They would have heard this sort of poetically. There's this rhyme, Christ is Christos, gain is kurdos. In a way, what Paul is saying is whether I live or die, I gain. Whether I live or die, I get Christ. There's some beautiful imagery that's being brought to us in the original language. What you'd also notice if you could read Greek is there's no word is in between live and Christ and die and gain. The Greek actually says, for me to live, Christ, to die, gain. And why I think Paul said that is he meant that there's really, there's a lot more than to just be like Christ. That's part of it. You know, when we read that, to live is Christ, what I hear is to keep on living is to be like Jesus. And that's totally true. That is part of our mandate as Christians. That's part of what we talked about last week, our sanctification, of our being set apart for the purpose of God. That's what sanctification means. That's part of it. But also to live, to live means for me to do what Jesus wants in my life. For me to live means that I depend on Jesus every single moment. For me to live means that I have the opportunity to honor God and bring fruit of what he's doing in the world to life. For me to live is to love Jesus. That's what life is. So what's death? Death is just to gain it all at once. So whether I live or die, Paul says, I get to be like Jesus, I get to love Jesus, and I get to do what Jesus wants. Because really, he's the one in control of it all anyways. 
What would our lives look like if we lived with this mindset? What would our lives look like? Like, how would they be different if we woke up every moment and we said there's an opportunity to be fruitful for Jesus? What would our life look like if every moment we went, I'm going to go out and I'm going to live fully for Jesus. I'm going to live all his values. I'm going to share his name. I'm going to do anything he asked me to do. Because even if I face death, it doesn't matter because I get all of him. Our world would look so much different if we actually lived that way. It breaks my heart when people see the church and they just think of a big empty box throughout the week that fills up time and again on Sunday. Instead of the people living in the streets, sharing the name of Jesus out of love for him and them. This is what we need to consider. If you've ever memorized that Bible verse, if you want a Bible verse, great Bible verse, easy to memorize, full of meaning and impact. But if you want to memorize that, if you want to know that, you got to live it. Jesus doesn't just invite us to have head knowledge. He invites us to give all of ourselves to him. Paul will later write to the church in Rome, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is Paul's expectation. This is what he embodied. It's, it's ultimately not even him. It's him saying, look at Jesus. Jesus offered himself as a living sacrifice. Jesus went everywhere talking about God's kingdom. Jesus didn't care what people thought of him. He was all about bringing God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. So what would it look like for us to mimic him? Not Paul, but Jesus. There's a huge need for this. Huge need for this. Take a look at these stats that are coming up on the screen. This is uh, the, the one on the left, a uh, study of world Christianity done in 2020. This is the percentage of all Christians. There's about 2.2 billion Christians in the world today. This is the percentage of where they live. Africa, 26%. Asia, 15%. Europe, 22%. Latin America, 24%. North America, 10%. Oceania, 1.1%. Okay, there's a little bit of Christians everywhere, but that also tells you there's a lot of no a lot of non-Christians everywhere. Look at that stat about Abbotsford. In 2001, 60% of Abbotsford claimed to have the Christian faith, and let's be honest, not everybody's a Christian in that group. In 2023, only 33% of our city would identify as Christian. Again, let's be honest, not everybody's actually living for Jesus in that number. There's a huge need in the world for you and I to live Christ and to view death as gain. Some of us might be called to go serve far away. That's, if that's you, if you have any inclination of like wanting to embrace a call of God on your life to go somewhere else to go and serve him, I'd encourage you to consider the numbers. Just take into consideration the stats. That's the percentage of Christians that are there. You can do the math. 
26% of 2.2 billion is X number. How many people live on the continent of Africa? 15% live in Asia. So 15% of 2.2 billion, what's that percentage? Take the total population. Look for the need that excites you then. Look for the percentages amongst the Christians in those places. And just ask yourself, God, is that where you want me to go live for you? But also don't be afraid. And I remember growing up and, and just feeling like I needed to go somewhere else to be a Christian. Like, I was like, God, if I'm going to serve you, and it, I fought the call of God in my life to make this a vocation for a very long time. But I said, if, I, if I'm going to do it, clearly I have to go overseas. But then I realized, man, we have so few Christians here in North America. We think we hear about it all the time because the news is always bashing Christians and so many people work Christian tropes into politics and all sorts of other things and we're like, wow, it's so Christian here and it's so unchristian elsewhere. Well, we're wrong. <laughs> it's actually much more Christian elsewhere and far less Christian here. We have a huge, huge need, no matter where you go, to live Christ and be willing to do it to the point where you know that to die is to gain all of what you'd have in pursuing Jesus and being with him. Now, I know some of us are probably thinking, sitting here thinking, I'm not the Apostle Paul, I'm certainly not Jesus I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. Maybe some of you are saying, but I'm an introvert. I'm too young to do it. I'm too old to do it. You don't know the things that I've done in my life. There should be reasons why I shouldn't be allowed to go and do this. Why, why, why maybe, maybe even if I'm allowed, I shouldn't do it because what do I represent? Well, to do that is to spit in the face of Christ. Jesus saved each and every one of us for the purpose of glorifying him. Jesus saved each and every one of us, introvert and extrovert, young and old, people with horrendous pasts, people with blemish-free pasts. He saved all of us to serve him. He put you exactly where he needs you. Yes, he may call you to go somewhere else where he wants you for his purposes, but if he doesn't do that, he's already brought you to the place that you are called. To fully embrace the sacrifice and the love of Jesus means to live Christ, fearing no possible consequence. Because we know that even if we were to die, we do not experience a spiritual death. Because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and our faith in him that he enabled us by the Holy Spirit to have ensures life eternal with him. The question is, will we pursue the inspiration of the cross? Will we keep ourselves motivated by learning how we can hunger over and over again to share the gospel despite what we have faced or what we fear facing as we live for him?
Will we be an inspiration? I especially mean this for anyone who's older, and by older, I mean older than someone else. You have an opportunity to be an inspiration. I remember being a kid in the church and looking up to youth and being like, wow, look at them. I remember being a youth and looking up to adults and being like, wow, look at them. I now look to older adults and go, wow, look at them. You can even be the oldest person in the room and look at someone who's dead and you remember they're living in him. The need is great. The reason for pursuing this even greater. So will we live Christ acknowledging that even if we were to die is to gain. As we think of that, we're going to enter into a time of communion this morning. Just a moment, I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come up, and our servers are going to go to their stations. And there's six stations around the room, and you're invited to, to head to one of them to receive the communion elements. We got bread, and we've got cups of juice, which represent the body of Jesus, which was broken for you, and his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And what I want you to do that I want you, as the song plays, to come and, and take the communion elements and go back to your seat. And whether you do this alone or with someone you, you came with or someone you're sitting near, it doesn't matter. I just want you to reflect. What does it look like to receive all of him? What does that mean for my life today? What does that mean for my death? And then when you're ready, just take the communion elements in your own time. Thanking Jesus for the sacrifice of his body and his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And then when we go, we go to live Christ and die gain. Let's pray and then take communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you wouldn't leave us to die like we deserve. But Lord, that you are active, that you are a, a moving God who loves his people and has reached out time and time again through history. But Lord, we thank you for the greatest of all those times, which was when you came, Jesus. When you were God incarnate, when you lived as a human so that you could die the way we deserve to die but so you could also be raised back to life. So that we could be raised to life spiritually. So that no matter even if we die physically, we know that we gain everything. Because we get to be with you from the moment we receive you all through eternity. Jesus, I pray as we receive your body, as we receive the representation of your body and your blood, Lord God, would we just be drawn to you would we become inspired to serve you, to know you, to love you? And Lord God, would you bring this all to mind in a fresh way? Or maybe for a first time, Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray that even now they would receive you and see that there's a life worth living in you. And then Lord God, will we celebrate well as we live each of our days this week, knowing that to live is you, Jesus. And to die is to gain. Amen.